may make another little bit of application. Isn't that when you get angry? When you've been kept from your goal, when somebody does something that doesn't, you know, doesn't go along with your pleasure, like your children or your husband or your wife. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maribel Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. application. Okay, next, Herod murders the children. We're moving along in the narrative. We really go back in time now, verse 16. Then when Herod saw, you're like, wait a minute, Herod's dead, right? We left him dead in verse 15. No, back in time, right? Back to the future, I guess. Uh, When Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So Herod murders the children. This is going to be the second prophetic fulfillment. And first here, he is enraged. It says when he saw that he had been tricked, the way Herod views it is that he was made a laughingstock of by the Magi. Now, that's not, the, the point wasn't to somehow deceive him inappropriately, to make fun of him. They were warned not to go back, that this, there was danger involved in that. Of course, he views that as circumventing his own will, his own purposes. They have belittled him, and they've kept him from his goal. So he's enraged. Well, may I make another little bit of application? Isn't that when you get angry? When you've been kept from your goal, when somebody does something that doesn't, you know, doesn't go along with your pleasure, like your children or your husband or your wife. Notice here, it says, when Herod was, he became very enraged. He'd been tricked. He'd been belittled. He'd been made fun of. He had been thwarted from his goal, which was to stay in power. That's all he wanted. And that's all we want. Now we've got some heavy application going here. We we, we look down on Herod. He's going to do this heinous, evil thing and kill babies. It's heinous and it's evil, but our hearts are the same. Apart from Christ, we are the same. So he in fact, the, the Greek here is very expressive. He became very enraged. The word itself is very powerful, and it's in what's called the passive. That is, he's acting under the control of the rage. That doesn't mean he's not responsible. It's just it's very, very vivid. This is how Herod has lived his life, by the way, in, enslaved to his passions. This is how every unbeliever lives their lives. Not that every unbeliever explodes in rage, but every unbeliever simply goes according to the next pleasure they want. The pleasure could be you know, a wonderful family, Right? Apart from Christ, that's just a sinful pleasure. It doesn't please and honor the Lord ultimately. It could be a, a successful career. It could be something like pornography or, a, or a, a, you know, a relationship that's inappropriate, whatever it might be. And oftentimes it is anger. There are very few unbelievers who aren't given to rage because it controls them. They're controlled by their passions. Well, Herod is just controlled and in, in a mighty way, but he's lived this way all of his life as history even tells us, and really our passage here shows to us. He becomes enraged. He, he is essentially controlled by his anger, which is him. It's not some outside force, but it's him, his lusts, his passion. And if you've ever been controlled by anger like this, you know what this is like. And understand that, you know, next it says he becomes murderous, but isn't the base of anger murder anyway? Isn't that what Jesus says? Herod just has the power and ability to carry it out. 
See, he's angry at the child. Why? He's angry at the magi because they thought if he could have killed them, he would have gone after him. It, would, it seems clear. He didn't know where they were. So his anger is focused on whom? The child. Because the child potentially will steal from him his authority, his power. And those are the things that make us angry, the most angry. Whoever's going to steal from you your ability to get what you want becomes your focus of rage. Well, if you're an unbeliever, you're controlled by it. And if you have the power and ability, given the right circumstances, you'd murder for it. You'd murder for it. If you could get, just get people out of your way, and if you needed to do that, you would. Look at the time of the judges when people could do whatever they wanted and they, there was no control by government even. They just killed people, murdered them, raped them, cut them up, sent them, sent them through, did all of these things. This is the nature of the human heart. Here's just expressing this. And this is the nature of the enemy of your soul, to hate and to kill. It's what he wants. It's what he's displaying here through Herod. Herod is fully responsible but he's reflecting the enemy of our soul and his entire agenda. He becomes enraged. He becomes murderous. He sent and slew. So when he saw, it just means when he understood he'd been tricked. And then he sent and slew. Well, he didn't go. He sent his army, however many he needed. But notice who gets, who gets the credit for this. Rightfully so, it's Herod. He sent, he slew. He's the one responsible. We understand that from the law. You send someone to kill someone else, you are responsible. They are too but you are held responsible. God holds Herod responsible for this murderous action. And it says he murdered, slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem in its vicinity. He wasn't taking any chances. Remember, it's five miles from Jerusalem. So it seems like it's probably everything but Jerusalem proper. You know, you didn't go into the city. It didn't happen there. It's clearly a separate city, but let's get everybody outside just in case. And notice that he says from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Now, it doesn't seem like it's been fully two years. It didn't take the Magi that long when they saw the star. Probably didn't take him two years to get there, right? So what is Herod doing? It's overkill. Or the Magi said this, maybe it was a year, six months, nine months, whatever. We saw the star nine months ago. So he goes, I'm not taking any chances. Maybe they were wrong. Maybe they lied to me. So I'll take them all out from two years under because it probably wasn't that long. Could have been up to that long, but it doesn't seem like it was. And so he takes them all out. He's comprehensive. To be safe, he kills all the babies from the time the star appeared to the time the Magi arrived. And this indicates that maybe the Magi took perhaps a year, maybe a little less for their journey. Now, this is a heinous action, clearly, to, to murder babies, children. But you guys, in Herod's long life of heinous acts, this is a little blip on the screen. Because the actual amount of babies killed, if there's 3,000 people, that's probably a, a, a large estimate of who was in Bethlehem and the surrounding vicinity. It's probably 20 to 25 children. Now, I'm not saying that's minor. Every child killed is horrible. But the reason that history doesn't record this, Josephus doesn't even mention it. At some point, they go, see, this can't be real. Because nobody records this massacre. For the people in Bethlehem, it was a heinous massacre. Outside looking in on Herod's life, he'd killed thousands before. He did this at, at whim. He killed people all the time. And so this was simply his nature living itself out. Yes, in, a, in an action that is horrible, and yet one which for his overall life was relatively minor. He did these, this kind of thing without even thinking. Not a second thought. It's like, oh, kill babies. Kill anyone who gets in his way. I guess he'd already been killing his own children. In fact, we know he killed his oldest, and he's old and infirm. He knows he's going to die, and yet he still is gripping power to with all that he has. He kills his oldest son days before he dies because he's afraid he might take power. When he's, when he's sick and about to die, he still kills him because no one will take his power. Because here is, again, he's a sickly personification of our own hearts. He's real. I'm, I'm not saying that he's not real. He just personifies who we really are if we're, if we're given into this, and particularly the unbeliever. As the true believer, isn't this? Oh, you wrestle with your sin. You wrestle with your desire for control. But the Spirit of God within you and your converted heart keeps you from being this. But if you are this, 
If rage controls you, if your lusts control you, if that's what you live for, you never bring them under control, that's an unbelieving heart. And that's all, that's all Herod, all, it's serious and, and deep, but that, that's, what he repre- that's what he is. He's an unbelieving heart given reign to accomplish his will. Now, there's one other thing that I need to point out here. Herod knew that he was killing or thought he was killing the Messiah. Not just any babies he's killing. And he knows that. He's been told this is the Messiah. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And so he's going to kill, do everything he possibly can to kill the Savior of the world so that his little teeny power won't get taken away. And again, he knows the import of it. The scribes tell him he's aware of the Jewish traditions, and yet he wants to kill the very one who would save. And he at least believes that this child holds threat to his throne, that he is the king of the Jews, the rightfully born king of the Jews, or at least that he will be held up to be that because he kills him. He, he takes this seriously. But I, but I ask you, are we less? Are, is any unbeliever less? Does not Peter lay at the feet of those in Jerusalem at the time when Jesus was, after he was killed, said, you Some of those certainly were standing there probably and saying, crucify him, but not all that had come. It is the heart of every unbeliever to remove the Savior because the Savior's Lord. The Savior's the one who rules. And we will have none of it. Herod wouldn't in a very physical, temporal way. And yet this is who we are in a physical, temporal, and spiritual way. Now also, Herod is fulfilling. Herod is fulfilling. That is, he too fulfills prophecy. Amazing. His actions, the actions of this evil man, Ultimately, even those bring about a fulfillment of a prophecy that was laid out by Jeremiah, verse 17. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. This is even more specific. Jeremiah says this, is what Matthew says. The specific prophet is named. Now he's quoting from Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. As nearly as we can tell, this is a direct quotation from the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text. Sometimes Matthew uses the LXX, the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Sometimes he uses, he apparently had access to the Hebrew text. This appears to be direct because we have that text, by the way, or one very close to it. And we have, we have text very close to the Septuagint. In fact, we have, we have ones that would be older than this time, 200 years before this. But nonetheless, so we have those texts we can look at, and he seems to be taking directly from the Hebrew text in quoting this, and yet he applies this because the context is what? In this passage, Jeremiah is talking about the lamenting of the mothers in Israel bewailing their, uh, bewailing their sons being led off into exile, Judah being taken into exile into Babylon. But here we have a very similar thing that's going on with out of Egypt I called my son. Israel is being taken away into exile. And Jesus is really completing that. He's fulfilling that. He's finishing that as he goes where? Into Egypt. That's what Matthew was telling us. That's what the Spirit of God is telling us. He's really fulfilling that or he's finishing that. And we have the weeping here of the women whose children have been killed. And again, corresponding to the weeping of the women whose, whose children are taken into exile. Why? Because Jesus is the one who redeems. There will be no exile. He's the one that comes out of exile as Israel was brought out of exile. And ultimately, he's the one that brings their provision. Jeremiah 31, 16, same chapter. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. Jesus is going into exile in Egypt. He's coming back to be the Savior. That's what is being, that's typified for us. Again, it's that typical presentation. that It may be that Jeremiah didn't know. But again, I would say, that's why I said the prophets didn't necessarily know. 
all of these prophecies coming around, even in Jeremiah, what do we have right after that? The new covenant given. All right, so under the old covenant, or even then there's, there's redemption being given out of Egypt and coming back from exile. But here we have really the fulfillment of that or, or the final complete end of that prophecy that is Jesus going into exile, coming out and providing salvation as he will do. Isaiah 59, 20 really speaks of this. A redeemer will come from Zion. And to those who turn from transgression and those who turn from transgression and Jacob declares the Lord, as for me, this is my covenant with them. My spirit is upon you. My words which I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring. Now, again, I don't have much time this morning, but that very passage in Isaiah 59 is quoted later on in Romans chapter 11. It's very interesting to find that although Jesus typically fulfills this exile in return, it doesn't undo the promises to national Israel that they too would receive a salvation, that they too would have a national and ethnic return to Christ. Because Romans 11 does not speak of the new covenant given during the time when Christ came. It speaks of Christ's second return, really the time of the tribulation is return where he blesses them. So fascinating that you see that although Jesus can be the type that fulfills these things, it does not end the promises to ethnic Israel, his still considered ethnic son. Now, just to kind of give you a little uh, warning here, I'm going to quote uh, the, that great uh, theologian Federico Moore. Some of you know him. He, he gave essentially this quote in, uh, when he was teaching 1 Corinthians to our, our teens when Paul was quoting from the Old Testament. And really, actually, Paul was changing the quote for his particular time period, and he was applying it to the Corinthians. And this is what he said, because that's a similar... No, he's not changing what Jeremiah said. But again, he's bringing a fulfillment that wouldn't have necessarily been recognized. This is what Fede said, and I'll say it to you. Here we have a divinely inspired apostle interpreting a divinely inspired prophet and providing a divinely inspired meaning. Don't try this at home. I'm just telling you that. You can't interpret the Bible that way. You take the New Testament, what it says about those things, you take that to the bank, and you don't try to typify the Bible in this way. Right? You can bring application, but don't say this is the type fulfilled, or this replaces that. Only what the Bible says, this replaces that. And when it says that, we believe it, and we take it. Now, an application here before we move to the, our last point. Herod, in the world's response to Jesus, is always crucify him, kill him, always. This will always be the world's response. To remove him from influence in their lives by whatever means possible because he threatens their sovereignty. Isn't that what Romans 1 says? Although they knew him to be God, they refused to recognize him. They refused to acknowledge him as God. They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image goes on to then just lay out the debauchery that happens from that. That's what we all desire. That's what Herod was doing literally here. We do it as best we can spiritually in our own lives for the, for the rule that Christ would have over us. What is your response to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Do you die to self and die with Christ? Or do you attempt to put him to death through arrogant disobedience? He will not rule over me. Well, that's what Herod was saying. We will have no other King of the Jews. I am the King of the Jews. And even that God uses. To even fulfill this, to complete the fulfillment of the prophecy of the weeping women at Ramah, which is, by the way, where the, where the exiles were staged, which is very close to Jerusalem, very close to Bethlehem. That's where they were staged before they went away into exile in Babylon. Lastly, Jesus, or excuse me, Joseph moves to Nazareth, prophetic fulfillment number three. This is the third one, and maybe the hardest one of all. Again, Joseph is instructed in almost exactly the same way. But when Herod died, we're back to the future, I guess, here. Because we had 
Joseph going to Egypt, remaining there until Herod dies, back to what Herod did. Now, in verse 19, back to Herod's death. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, exact, essentially the exact same words, another dream to reveal to him that which he needed to know at that time. Get up, take the child and his mother, go into the land of Israel, for those who have sought the child's life are dead. The only difference here is, instead of go to Egypt, where does he go? Israel. This seems to be the right direction. But no, remember, he went to Egypt for a purpose. God, in, 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 his, in his infinite and sovereign wisdom, even in his dealings with Israel in the Old Testament, is paving the way for what Jesus will do. He never does anything that doesn't have purpose. That we know. Whether we can ascertain the purpose or not, God always does that which he purposes to do. And in this case, we see it very clearly. The geographical locations to which Jesus goes, to which he is driven, as it were, by seeming circumstance, are all part of God's sovereign plan to take him exactly where he needs to be to fulfill prophecy, to demonstrate that he is king. Wow. You believe in a little sovereign, you know, or a little tribal deity? That's what the world tells you? Get out of here. You believe in the sovereign king of the universe predicted hundreds of years before exactly where he would move. And not only that, but in concert with what had been done thousands of years before in the nation of Israel. Be in awe. Be in awe. This is the God you serve. All of this revealed to us in the book of Matthew. Joseph is instructed again to get up and go. Not quite so urgent. Seems like the angel is like, get up now. He doesn't leave at night. Packs his family. Maybe he's got a little bit more stuff. A couple more donkeys. Packs it up. Gets ready to go. But he does exactly the same thing Right? He obeys. Now, just it says when Herod died, it's, I guess, in one sense, good to have him off the scene. He was, uh, those verses in the Old Testament, those kings that he was, uh, he went to sleep with his fathers and he was not mourned by the people. What a horrible end. Well, that's Herod. Remember what he said? He tried to have people murdered who the people really liked when he, w- when he died so that they would mourn. That didn't happen, by the way, as nearly as history records. They didn't actually do that. But that's the kind of man he was. Nobody mourned him. Why? Josephus says he was this. He was a man of great barbarity towards all men equally and a slave to his passion. Would that that not be your legacy, by the way? A man of equal barbarity to all people equally, and a slave to his passion. That, again, that describes unbelievers generally. So he, an angel of the Lord appears in a dream. He goes. They go into the land of Egypt. Joseph obeys. That's the second one. So he's instructed. He obeys. He takes the child. Right? Immediately obeys. Again, fully without question. But notice there's a difference here. Joseph is afraid. That's number three under this point. He gets up, he goes, but, verse 22, kind of surprising to us here, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod. Oh, a little historical detail. When Herod dies, he divides his kingdom up into four, into four groups. He had a few sons left, amazingly enough. He killed one of them again three days before he died. He's got a couple left, three of them, uh, some by different women, and he divides up his, his territory among four people. Now, fascinatingly enough, Archelaus is the one who ends up reigning over Judea. Archelaus is the one who was bloodthirsty, right? He killed 3,000 people. There was, a, there was a, two Jewish rabbis had incited several men to go and, and tear down the Roman eagle that they put over the temple. They considered that a, an idol, a violation of the temple. They tore it down. Well, Archelaus, Herod Archelaus said, well, it, it, was the, it was the time of the pilgrimage to Israel. So he just randomly essentially went and murdered 3,000 of the Jews who were on pilgrimage to say, don't do that again. That's the kind of guy he was. Now, isn't it fascinating that he's the one who reigns over Judea, right? Herod Antipas, who was a much more, at least compared to Herod the Great and Herod Archelaus, a much more genteel ruler, a better ruler, and one who was less bloodthirsty, where do you suppose he is ruling? Galilee. And oftentimes, by the way, Jesus goes back to Galilee under Herod Antipas's rule. He's not a nice guy. He calls him a fox. But nonetheless, he doesn't murder people. 
And so here we have another sovereign work of God and dividing the will. And by the way, it was changed multiple times right before Herod died and then approved by the Roman Empire that Archelaus would take over Judea. Why? So that Joseph doesn't go back to Bethlehem. Big problem. Because Jesus is to be called a Nazarene, as we will see. Can't go back there. That's amazing. And so... Joseph is about to go. He's afraid first. He hears, and this seems to be kind of the historical side of things. He hears and he goes, Archelaus, not a good dude. I don't know exactly how he knew that, but he's already afraid before he gets warned again. That seems to be the flow of the text. So like, whoa, what do I do now? It's like he pauses. I can't go here. Archelaus is now in charge. So what am I going to do? Again, Archelaus, what he was like, he was, he was, I think, 30 or 40 at the time, would have already have been known. Joseph grew up in Bethlehem, or his family grew up in Bethlehem. They would have known, don't come back here. So then the Lord graciously helps him again. Joseph is warned. Then after being warned, the NASB, notice the little italics there. And if you're reading the New American Standard, understand that anytime you have the italics, it means something has been added to the translation to help the reading. It says warned by God. Now, it seems obvious this was by God, but just as a little aside, those words aren't in there. And sometimes the NSB gets a little nosy and does a little bit too much maybe. It says warned in a dream. If you have ESV, there's no by God. If you have uh, NIV or New King James, it doesn't say warned by God. Now, I think that's obvious But nonetheless, let's not add things where we don't need to. After being warned in a dream, okay, he left for the regions of where? Galilee. And then five, Joseph is settled. So four was Joseph is warned. Five, Joseph is settled. Where does he just happen to settle? Since he can't get into Judea, he can't go back probably to the house and the career that he managed to cobble together after Jesus was born. Now he's got to go back where? Well, fascinatingly enough, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but to where he already was. God pushes him back in that direction. Right, by his sovereign work. And it is fascinating that Matthew doesn't tell us that. He doesn't have to. He's not required to. Luke says that he started there. But Matthew's emphasis is what? On God's sovereign work. And it is, God isn't any less sovereign because we, know, because we learn in Luke that jo- Joseph already probably had roots there. What, what Matthew is highlighting is this was God's work to get him there. And so remember, the Gospels are written from an individual perspective on purpose. Let's not conflate them all together and just learn a mishmash. And so we aren't told that he started out in Nazareth because it highlights God's sovereign work to take him back there so that this last prophecy can be fulfilled. But it is a bit of a problem. And by problem, I just mean something that needs to be solved. Remember, when you have an historical text with real historical narrative and real places corresponding to real prophets in in written texts that we already have, you got to work through difficulties. And so we're doing that. So by problem, I don't mean, well, the Bible might not be true. I simply mean we got to work through what's going on because says here, and he lived in Nazareth, this was to fulfill. There we have it again, another geographical prophecy fulfilled. And it was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, I don't want to dwell on it too much, we don't have time, but notice there's a little difference in the quotation formula, and I think that's important, by the way. It says, this was spoken through the prophets. That is not one specific prophecy given, which is actually a good thing. I'm, I'm glad that he said that it was plural, because if you look in the Old Testament, you won't find this prophecy. Nowhere is the town of Nazareth mentioned in the Old Testament, not one time. Now, there's been various ways to try to get around this. Someone said, well, it's a play on words of a, of a, of a, of a Hebrew word. That's a little hard because this is Greek. And so the, the play of words would have been totally lost on everybody. Additionally, some say, well, ah, oh, he means Nazarite. There's only one word difference in the Greek. Maybe he's a Nazarite. We see a lot of Nazarites in the Old Testament. Who was a, who was a famous Nazarite? Samson. Well, the contrast of Jesus and Samson, are the, I'm not sure that would be great. Although, again, we've got characters all over the Bible that are kind of unsavory. But Jesus clearly was not a Nazarite. You know why? 
because Nazarites don't drink wine. Now, Jesus, we find later on, he, one of the things that he is, he is, uh, his reputation is, is trampled on is the fact that he eats and drinks wine. Yes, wine. Now, I've done another sermon on that, so you can go get that if you're freaking out. All right. <laughs> but he drank wine with the scribes or with, with the tax gatherers and sinners. He was clearly not a Nazarite, so it doesn't work. Can't fix it that way. Two ways to fix it. I'll give you both and tell you the one that I choose, and then we'll be done. You're like, it's about time. Well, these are important to get through. By, by the way, well, first, Nazarene, why, why is that important? Uh, you might think, Nazarene, okay, good. Well, Bethlehem, well, Bethlehem's got a pretty good pedigree, right? City of David. Nazareth, well, maybe that has a good pedigree. Maybe that's a happen in town. Yeah, right, it is. John 1, Jesus goes to find Nathaniel, or he, he sends, he, he gets, Nathaniel comes to Jesus to be one of his disciples. And Nathaniel said to him, that is Philip who went to go get Nathaniel. He says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I'm not going to mention any towns around here because I'll get in big trouble, all right? But it's like living on the other side of the tracks. It's living in the ghetto. You, you name it. It's like being known from that geographical location that nothing good comes from. By the way, Nathaniel lived about five miles from Nazareth. He's like, we don't go there. Nothing good comes out of there. And we know that Nathaniel, by the way, was a man in whom there is no guile. He's not, he's not, you know, not dissing on Nazareth. This was, this was what it was known for. Nothing good comes from there. And particularly, I think Nathaniel's main point, no Messiah comes from there. No, no Messiah comes out of Nazareth. So why is it necessary that it be called a Nazarene? Well, here are the two possibilities. The first one, this is from, from John MacArthur. He says, several Old Testament prophets, he said this is what he thinks is happening, because there's plural, several Old Testament prophets made this prediction. It was known to the Jews as a whole, but not written down in the Old Testament. That is, it was a prophecy that was known, but we don't have a particular text that points to it. Now, that's possible because there are other Old Testament prophecies or prophecies that are drawn into the New Testament that we don't have record of. In Jude, it talks about Enoch and the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. We don't have that anywhere in the, in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures in our canon. Even the, even the Apostle Paul would quote things from Jesus that weren't written in the Gospels anywhere, right? He would say, our Lord said this, he revealed this, and we look in other places in the New Testament, we can't find it. So that certainly is a possibility. Matthew's original readers are largely Jewish, and maybe this was common knowledge to them, and so it was a prophecy that he would be a Nazarene. That's one, one possibility, and it's fine, it's good. I, I think there's another possibility that I like better. I'll put it that way. Do I think, I think the evidence could go either way, which is why I say I like better. I think there is some evidence for this one, right? Now, look at um, chapter 1, verse 20. It says, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is an Old Testament prophecy that is giving a name. I ask you, was that name ever spoken of about Jesus? Would anyone say, hey, Emmanuel, that we can see in the New Testament? No. We said, we said when I discussed that, that that, was, that that name talked about who Jesus was. He was the God-man. He was God with us. I think the reverse thing is happening here. Right? That, that the, what the prophets talked about, about who Jesus was, that he was what? Despised and forsaken of men. It was of no reputation, right? That even, even essentially where, where he was born, his, the way he was born, his lineage, all of those things made him to be someone that no one would ever imagine, a Nazarene, as it were. I think we're having kind of the reverse. That is, the Old Testament prophets talked all about the nature of who Jesus was. And here, the Spirit of God is giving that a name, Jesus the Nazarene, the one who was of no reputation from a nowhere town and nothing. Right, Isaiah 53, just, you know, where do the prophets speak of that? Well, everywhere, right? That Jesus was a nobody. Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed our message? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. I would see the, the plural prophets saying, look, this is, a, this is a, a general prediction of what Jesus would be like and is specifically named here by the Spirit of God. He's going to be called a Nazarene. Now, you can take either one. I think either one will work. I think either one have examples in Scripture of how you can interpret Scripture in that way while still staying with a literal, grammatical, contextual, hermeneutic, historical. Now, in case we get lost in all of the understanding of prophecy and all of these things, I need, let me ground you with, with essentially three questions or statements. The spiritual battle is raging just as it was when Christ was born. Are you winning or losing? Which one? Are you even a believer? Are you even in the battle? Are you, are you already defeated because you're an unbeliever? If you're a believer, are you winning or losing? The enemy of your soul prowls. Are you taking hold of scripture, the spirit of God, the power of God to accomplish righteousness so that you might see that enemy defeated and the work of God going forth? The second question would be, the world's response to Jesus is to deny his lordship and to try to kill his lordship in their lives. What's your response? What's your response? If you're an unbeliever, you're running from the lordship of Christ. You, you, you might have him as savior, but you will not have him as your king. And he is the savior king. If you're a believer, are there areas in your life that you're saying, I don't want the lordship. I want salvation. I want to go to heaven. But I don't want him to rule. That's the heart of Herod. If you're a believer, you don't have his heart. Don't misunderstand me. But why would you mimic the heart of an unbeliever like that? Don't do it. Your, your Lord is worth more than that. And he died that you wouldn't be that way. Question three is Jesus was despised and rejected by men. A, a Nazarene, if you will. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Are you willing to become the same that you might please the only one whose opinion truly matters? God himself. They will call you a fool. Christianity lived rightly does not bring the praise of the world ever. They'll call you a fool. They'll call you, you believe in a little tribal deity. You believe in a little religion that your parents believed, that your church foisted upon you. You do not. It has been proven to you here. We've seen five prophetic fulfillments over the past two months that demonstrate the reality that hundreds, thousands of years God had this plan. This is the real Messiah, the true one. Would you, will you stake your life with his and not with the world. Will you be a Nazarene? From a backwater place, or do you want to be impressive? Show your credentials. Show how reasonable you are. Let's be careful here. Jesus was willing and was despised and forsaken of men. Matthew has written that you might know and believe that Jesus is the true Savior King, despite all that Satan and the world would do to discredit him. Will you exercise faith in the spiritual battle this week on the basis of Matthew's testimony of the reality of Jesus as your Messiah? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your powerful testimony in Scripture to the reality of Jesus as our Savior and King. We rejoice in that reality. We worship you for that reality. We fall on our faces before you. Lord, help us to yield our lives to you ever increasingly, to love you, to honor you, to exalt you because you are the true king and you have saved us from our sin. Oh, Father, I pray that we would not respond as Herod, not respond as the world, but that we would stand together with Jesus who was called a Nazarene, a nowhere man from a nowhere place and that we would be willing to be found faithful to the King of Kings. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.
Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.